welcome to Churchpreneur's Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith-related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world within this generation. It's possible, folks. Uh, In this podcast, I talk about everything that is moving me in relation to church and theology, hopefully to empower you and your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your personal growth in Christ. Today, I am continuing my uh, critique and uh, review of Rediscover Bethel. So Bethel Church in Redding, California did a series, a podcast series, six long episodes, uh, most of them almost two hours long, um, called Rediscover Bethel. And today I'm going to review episode five. If you stuck with me through this podcast series, thanks for sticking with. Uh, and uh, so someone asked me to do review this series. So it was a six episode series. I reviewed all six episodes. I met, took detailed, detailed notes, time stamped everything, made sure it was all in the right spots, etc. And uh, so I'm going to review today episode five of the Rediscover Bethel series. The link, I'll put the link to the original episode in the description. I'm not going to show any of their podcast for uh, copyright purposes. I don't want to get a copyright strike on my channel. So according to the Fair Use Act, uh, Title 17 uh, allows people to reproduce and redistribute uh, portions of copyright material for review, for uh, criticism, etc. And uh, so Bethel doesn't allow uh, sometimes their their copyrighted material to be re- reused. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say what they said. I have all the quotes here if I've quoted it, um, just so you know. And I try to timestamp stuff so you can actually go see um, uh, where I've where I've found that material, what they've said. So at the beginning of episode five, episode five is uh, called Prophecy, Risk, and the Prosperity Gospel. Chris Valentin and Dan Fairley. So Chris Valentin is being interviewed by Dan Fairley. Dan Fairley is the new pastor at Bethel, uh, taken over for his uh, Bill Johnson's son, Eric Johnson, who left uh, maybe a year ago, a little more than a year ago. And Chris Valentin is the prophet at Bethel. So this episode begins with Dan Fairley making a joke, funny enough. Um, and he says, I was under the impression that uh, they weren't making prophets anymore. So Chris Valentin sitting right across from him is a prophet. And he said, I was under the impression they weren't making profits anymore. So um, kind of, it's pretty funny. They're making a joke at their own expense, saying profits don't exist anymore. Um, sort of the cessationist idea, funny enough. But I guess Dan Fairley changed his mind because um, they do exist now. So um, at the very beginning of the episode, then Chris Valentin sets the groundwork that there are differences between Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets. Chris Fallaton says basically that God originally wanted just relationship, but the people wanted rules. So God decided to give people rules instead of relationship because they asked for it. Um, yeah, uh, this is a, a bad beginning. <laughs> um, it's hard for, to know sort of, this is awful. So I, I don't know. The law existed because people wanted them. Um in the Old Testament, there's no scriptural basis for this whatsoever. The law existed 
as per the pre-existent foreknowledge of God, he planned it. It's not like God said, well, I guess, you know, they wanted, I wanted a relationship with them originally. Um, and so I'll just give them the law and, it, you know, they don't want a relationship with me. So I'll, I'll give them the law. This is awful, man. I mean, the law of God is not something that he just sort of thought up because we didn't want a relationship with him. Well, it was plan B, I guess, you know, since they don't want relationship, then I'll go with plan B. The law of God existed in his predetermined foreknowledge. He knew that the fall would happen, whether your sovereignty and, you know, and you believe that the fall is not God's sovereign plan. Okay. Maybe you're Arminian in that sense. Okay. Whatever. But you have to believe that the law, God planned the law. He didn't, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a a uh, slip up. It wasn't a, well, they didn't, they didn't want a relationship with me, so I'll make the law. You, you can't hold that view. There, there's no biblical basis for that whatsoever. So uh, he starts off real bad here. So at the four minute mark in this episode, uh, episode five, again, Chris Valentin and Dan Fairley say that the prophet in the old Testament was the covenant enforcer, quote unquote, the policeman of the old Testament. I don't know really where he's basing that. Um, it can you you know can the can you say anywhere in the new testament in the old testament that you would say well the prophet was god's policeman yeah i mean they were they were they were usually bringing the bringing the heat as it were <laughs> repent um and i don't see a change in the new testament if you say a prophet uh in the new testament that has prophesied, they're usually prophesying about the same way as the Old Testament prophets did. Repent. Um, so the next section of the podcast, Chris and Dan describe how our prophecies are partnering with God. Basically, God cannot act until we speak our prophecy into existence. It's partnering with him that is basically word-faith theology. Again, repackage. We partner with God by speaking things into existence. He can't really act quite without the prophetic. So that's how they actually build their case for this prophetic necessity. It's absolutely necessary that we prophesy or else, you know, God might not really be able to act properly like he wants to. Um, it's really a confusing section. So this begins, <laughs> begins again, sort of on a bad note. They use uh, Ishmael as an example of how basically God can't act and could not have done anything until they took action. Um, they then use Jesus' birth as an example of prophecy, speaking a thing into existence. They say immaculate conception. Um, so <laughs> first of all, uh, it's hard to know where to start sometimes with these guys. First of all, it was not an immaculate conception. They actually say immaculate conception, but, but we know that the theology in the Catholic Church of the immaculate conception is inaccurate. Mary had children after Jesus. So the Immaculate Conception, for those who are not aware, is that Mary remained a virgin. Uh, she, was, she conceived Jesus, birthed Jesus, and remained a virgin throughout her life and into uh, her status now as, as Mary in heaven, to whom they also still pray and hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, you know, the, the, the you know, they're still worshiping Mary for that immaculate conception. And, uh, but we know that Mary had children after Jesus. 
she didn't uh, continue to stay a virgin. You know, James is the brother of Jesus. Um, so there's a lot of confusing stuff in this section. The Immaculate Conception wasn't an Immaculate Conception. We know that Mary had other children. They then describe Mary's, the birth of Jesus and Mary having to have had a prophecy or else it would not have happened. Um, this is hard to describe how incorrect this is. Um, it is stretching it. They stretch every th single thing to make it fit into prophecy. You know, like they stretch it all out. And see, let's see how we can fit prophecy in here. Uh, so it actually makes lots of sense why they put such a heavy emphasis on prophecy because God has to have prophecy to act. And we know God continues to act and he is active in history to this day. And so for God to continue to be active for them, we have to prophesy in partnership with God to speak things into existence through prophecy. That's their theology. So Valentin uh, uses the story uh, of Hagar um, and how she wanted to lie with her master in partnership. I, it's just, it's a complete confusion of the word of God. She was prophesying by wanting to lie with her, uh, with Abraham. I, like, I don't know, it's totally confusing and totally misinterpreting it. Um, they're just events that happened, right? Um, Hagar was Abraham's uh, servant, right? Maid servant. And it's not a partnering with God in the prophetic. I don't see any scriptural basis for this. It really gives the impression that we have to partner with God um, to have babies, like, for instance, Ishmael, right? There's no such idea in scripture that I'm aware of. Um, so that's that section. It starts off real interesting. <laughs> Dan Fairley then says at the 1920 mark that nobody hears perfectly in relation to prophetic ministry. So I guess he means to say that no prophet, no person who, who prophesies hears perfectly from God, uh, that prophets can get it wrong. Uh, this is how they justify false prophecy and the like. Uh, nobody hears perfectly, so, you know, sometimes we'll get it wrong. It's going to be messy, quote unquote, is what he says. And as well, at the 19, 20-minute mark um, around there, Chris Valentin and, and Fairley uh, give the justification for false prophecy by saying that nobody hears God correctly. The problem with that is that that's not scriptural. No prophet in all of biblical history ever got a true prophecy that was from God wrong. And if they did get a prophecy wrong, they were considered immediately a false prophet and usually stoned or condemned as a false prophet. Now, there were false prophets who were allowed to live, let's say. Um, you could think of uh, Balaam. Uh, he was a false prophet. He was a seer that, that did not, he was not a prophet of God. Um, you think of others, you know, um, who, who were false prophets and were stoned, you know, um, if God spoke in human history, he spoke with authority and people knew exactly that it was God speaking. There was no equivocation. There was no ambiguousness. There was no, Hmm, you know, I wonder if this is God or not. Um, speaking to me, um, there was no guesswork. There was no incorrect hearing from God. Either God spoke or he did not speak. And in that case, it was their own imaginations. Uh, 
Then Chris Valentin uh, says that he's met in his lifetime five false prophets. So he can actually say beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's met five people who were false prophets. How were they false prophets, actually, again? Hmm. <laughs> um, what made them false prophets? Uh, he never names why or, or how he knew um, how to name them false prophets, but he just he does say that they were, quote-unquote, hyper-spiritual now that's the reason he gives them for gives for for them being false prophets. He says so. God speaks to these hyper spiritual prophets all the time, and Chris Valentin says they're quote unquote scary people. Uh, do, where does where does he base that? You know, it's just it's just subjective. What's the difference between what he's talking about with these false prophets and what they do at Bethel? Because every time. There's some kind of sermon or some kind of someone standing in front of the stage. There's some kind of prophecy. If you're standing on the stage at Bethel, you're going to have a revelation, a knowledge, a word of wisdom, et cetera, et cetera, a prophecy, something. So um, for them, everybody's meant to be a prophet. Everybody's meant to be hearing from God. What's the difference What's the difference in those hyper-spiritual people uh, that God tells them, uh, like, what shirt to wear, for instance, he says. He says, they, God told them to wear what shirt, and um, et cetera, and so forth. You know, God tells them everything, apparently, right? Um, those are the false prophets he was talking about. What's the difference? What, they're doing the same thing at Bethel. Um, looking for every single word, you know, I'm, I'm going to go talk to this person over there. I'm going to, I need a, I need a shirt color. Uh, you know, I need to see, go, you know, have these treasure hunts uh, that they do at, at BSSM Bethel school of supernatural ministry, where they look around and see, you know, have impressions of what, you know, what to look for when they go out on their treasure hunts. They gather all the treasures in their, in their, uh, imaginations, actually it's their imaginations, and they say, well, let's put those all together in a pot, sort of. And we're looking for people with crutches. We're looking for someone in a wheelchair. We're looking for someone at Starbucks. I see a S, like the Starbucks. Uh, we're looking for uh, this, that, and the other thing uh, to try to, you know, create a, a hunt for all those treasures that they've collected in their own imaginations. What's the difference? Those are all hyper-spiritual, you know. I, I don't see a difference. Why is their type or brand of prophecy not scary? And the false prophets that he's met, uh, these five false prophets he talks about, why are why are they scary? What's the difference? There is no difference. He just makes Bethel look better and wants for them to be seen as non-false prophets. But a false prophet is not someone who's hyper-spiritual. False, a false prophet is someone who says God said something to them and it was wrong or incorrect, or did not come to pass. That's the definition of a false prophet. Not hyper-spiritual, not looking, you know, trying to hear from God on what shirt I should wear today, or, or what who I should date, or or all that stuff. That's not a false prophet. False prophet sa says, God said, or thus saith the Lord, and it did not come to pass, or was wrong. Not that they're hyper-spiritual, or that God told them this or that or the other thing. So this is actually the big question. Does God continue to give revelation after Scripture? 
The canon of Scripture has been established. That's the big question. Has revelation continued where God is still speaking to people individually, still continuing his revelation, like Chris Vallotton's revelations of Jesus telling him that we're moving away from denominations and moving to apostleships? That's a new revelation. If yes, that means God is still speaking and he's speaking with canon authority. The question really is, does God still speak? If he speaks, does he make errors? If he makes errors, then it was not God who spoke. He is infallible. He speaks infallibly. And if he spoke infallibly, then it was not God. Funny enough, my, my daughter was then listening in to me, uh, writing my notes and watching and taking, taking notes here. And, and she said in the background, it wasn't God if he spoke with any errors. <laughs> so uh, if, you have your, if you've spoken with errors, you're a false prophet. If you claim God spoke to you or you say God spoke to you and, and you had spoken his word, right? This is thus is the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Or I, I got up before I got up on stage, God told me and it did not come to pass. Or, you know, you have a word of wisdom, like a word of knowledge, like I've seen lately, you know, does someone, I, I sense someone in the crowd has, has a, something wrong with a bladder. Is there someone here with a bladder problem, some kind of blood? And then no one shows up. God told me that there was someone with a bladder issue here. No, no bladder issues. Nobody out there with a bladder issue. You're a false prophet. God didn't speak to you. That's your own imagination. Finished. If God says, you, if you say, God says to me this, that, and the other thing, and it didn't come to pass, you're a false prophet. So even my daughter in the background, my 12-year-old, knows this. Like if, if you spoke with errors, it wasn't God. So at the 22-minute mark, Valentin quotes the passage where Paul writes, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. So he's misunderstanding prophecy. In that context, prophecy is uh, what Paul's talking about is the illumination of God's word, the teaching and instruction in God's word. And, and so he's not understanding prophecy in that context uh, as the prophecy that instructs the church. So that kind of prophecy that Paul is re referring to is instruction. Um, he understands all prophecy, wherever prophecy comes up in the New Testament, uh, as meaning either foretelling truth or like they do it at Bethel, that, that kind of just give a great encouragement to someone. I see God doing this in your life, you know. I, I see that, that you know, you're a worship leader and, and you play the guitar so well and he's, he's uh, anointing that and he's going he's gonna to propel you into the, you know, all that type of stuff. That's not, a, that's not prophecy. That's just an encouragement. <laughs> if you, if you want to say it's, man, you should really stick with the guitar. You're good at that. I think God is going to use you in some way. That would be great. But that's not prophecy. So it's actually funny. They will use prophecy in this way, like Balaton said, those hyper-spiritual people did this, that, or the other thing, and they'll do the same thing. They'll, they'll say, God's told me that he's going to do this and this and this for you. Did God tell you? Or could it just be that you should encourage people? The Bible's clear. It says, encourage one another as long as it is today. Encouragement's great, but it's not prophecy. So um, they 
use prophecy, you know, and all sorts of things. I see God doing this in your life. You're awesome. Keep on going in your business or you're an actress and God really wants you to be at Hollywood. And, and you know, this type of prophecy that, that, that's the kind of prophecy they do at Bethel. It's not prophecy at all. It's barely a good cold reading. You know, cold reading is, is someone can sit down and kind of look at the person and see that they've got this, that, or the other thing. They're wearing this type of clothing. They've got this kind of look. Their, their mother's with them, and they do a cold reading. It's a science. People can do that and do a cold reading. And so it's the type of prophecy they do at Bethel is a barely a good cold reading, but it is that type of, it's a cold reading type stuff. Uh, if, if it were in psychic circles, they would probably laugh at them for doing what they do. But yeah, this is that, this is what it is. It's a prophecy that's, they understand as prophecy, but it's nowhere to be seen. That type of prophecy is nowhere to be seen in the new Testament. So even um, with uh, prophets in the New Testament, think of like Agabus, who prophesied, took his belt off, wrapped it around, bound Paul up with the, with the belt, and told him, if you continue on to Rome, you will be bound up and captured and imprisoned like this. And it came true. I mean, it's not like, hey, Paul, man, God really wants you to go to Rome, and, and, and I see wonderful things for you there, you know? Caesar, he's gonna he's gonna make you a king in his court. You know, like come on. You know, that's what the type of prophecy you'd have at Bethel. But but Agabus prophesies you'll go there and you'll be bound up, you'll be imprisoned, and it happened. Just like he said. I mean, I don't see a prophecy. I would love to see a prophecy. Give me a prophecy from the New Testament, if you don't mind, that is like. God's got a wonderful plan for your life and you're going to, you're awesome, man. You should go to Hollywood and, and you know, your gifting is going to just, he's just going to put you up on a pedestal and please, I would love to see, put a prophecy like that from the New Testament in the comments down below and let's get with it. If that's, if that's actually a thing, but it's not a thing. There's no prophecy in the New Testament like what they do at Bethel. So at the 23-minute mark, then Valentin makes a big leap and says that prophecy is the best spiritual gift, quote-unquote. That's just not true. Paul doesn't say that. He says, earnestly desire prophecy, and prophecy is better than speaking in 10,000 words in a tongue. So what Paul is getting at in that passage is that prophecy is instruction. It says, I wish I could speak five words intelligibly for your edification than 10,000 words in a tongue. So prophecy in that context is words for your edification, instruction, etc., uh, it's not the kind of prophecy that they practice at Bethel, which is basically a bad, cold reading. It's just not um, biblical gift of prophecy. So uh, th that's why these young people go after these gifts because you're a better Christian if you do. You can be a, if you're a, if you have the gift of prophecy at Bethel. I mean, I don't know actually know what you would do otherwise at Bethel um, besides have this gift of prophecy. It is so heavily. Um, taught and pushed at Bethel that you become a prophet, that you prophesy, um, that if you didn't have that, or if you never tried it or did it, you're like a zero at this church. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't say that for a fact because I don't know, but if you don't, if you don't pursue the gift of prophecy, what are you doing there? You're a better Christian if you're a prophet. You're a better Christian if you can prophesy, and even better, you're an even better Christian if you're an apostle. 
So these guys create this theology that apostles and prophets are basically better Christians. They're better than other Christians, and, and, and they have better spiritual gifts. So it's a created environment of, of apostles and prophets are the those you should you should want those better gifts. He just said it, he says it. That's a better gift. So uh, Chris Valentin at the twenty four minute mark then says prophecy is always about the future, and so he understands and thinks about prophecy in those terms that it's that it's only about the future. There's no foretelling the truth, uh, which is uh, what the New Testament describes as the gift of prophecy, a foretelling. Uh, there are a few instances where, like Agabus, you know, uh, told the, could see the future and told Paul that he would be bound and stuff like this. But they're not wonderful, peachy keen, bed of roses type futures that that these prophecies in the New Testament give. That they're all Old Testament type warning prophecies. Um, so. Yeah, um, he does. I do give him credit in the section from 23 to 24 minute mark. He basically says, you're not more spiritual if you have this gift. I do give him credit for that. Thanks for that. That's good. Uh, but it's almost too little too late because they build their whole ministry around prophecy. And basically the more spiritual people are, are those who are prophets. So they basically set up a, a more a spiritual hierarchy. You know, there there's certainly apostles are up here at the top. Um, and maybe prophets, maybe the actually prophets are sort of like on, on a level, a tick below them and then everybody else. So there's a hierarchy. If, if you're a prophet or, or apostle, man, you're at the top of the food chain and, um, everybody else, you're certainly more spiritual because you can hear God, you know, you, you're tuned in, you get that, you got that frequency, right? You know, you're looking on the radio dial and tick, 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 tick. You got it. You know, you're ticked in, you're, you're tuned in on the right frequency, and um, so these people are, are, are certainly more more spiritual. They do give much more weight to people who can prophesy, even though there are no true prophets at Bethel. Honestly, no one has accurately told the future, not even Valentin himself. Uh, he's, he, he's hit at stuff, maybe, um, but even the last one with, with Trump, he got that terribly wrong. And now, um, you know... Uh, War, as I'm recording this, the war has broken out in Ukraine. Uh, Russia attacked and invaded uh, Ukraine. No prophet in the NAR that I know of saw that coming. Um, so these guys, they can't tell the, they can't tell the future. They can't see into the future. There are no true prophets. They don't get it right. Um, they really push it as the highest gift that you can have. And so in principle and in practice, most of the people at their church pursue that gift because they believe it's the more spiritual of the gifts as their theology. And as he just said in this episode, as that shows, um, what they say here and what they do in practice do not match up. So he says, basically, you're not more spiritual if you have it, but I mean, come on, it, it's, it is. Those kids are seeking it. Because they go to BSSM, people go to Bethel to get that gift so they can be more spiritual. Um, what they do is they practice a form of spirituality. They say that prophecy and all these gifts are more important and more spiritual. And it's, it's, it's double speak. You know, he says out of one side of his mouth, it's not as you're not spirit more spiritual if you're a prophet. But in, in practicality, they're teaching and pushing that you are close to God and you can hear from God when you prophesy. So. It's double speak. Uh, these gifts don't make you more spiritual, but you are more spiritual 
in practice at Bethel and in this movement, the NAR, if you can prophesy. So it's a it's double tongued, for sure. At the twenty five minute mark, then Valentin says, "The value you place, quote unquote, the value you place on the word is the value you receive from the word." Uh, so Chris Valentin said, "The value you put on the word is the." power you receive from the word, meaning a prophetic word. So with this, he he basically uh, says, the power of the prophetic word, whoever it speaks it, is only tantamount or equal to the value you place on it. So you must value the prophecy or else you can't receive the, any power from it. Um, did, did that work out at all in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Did the people who received the prophetic words have to place value on the prophetic word before there was any power or value in it? No, those words were true, valuable, and powerful in and of themselves because God spoke them. And when God speaks, it holds power. We don't put power onto prophetic words by valuing them. Again, this is man-centered, word-faith type theology that they purport we give prophecy value by placing our value on it. Either it's true and a prophecy from God, whether I accept it or not, or it's not from God and it's a presumptuous prophecy. Mic drop. I mean, literally, either God spoke it or he didn't. This is a very subtle, but it's very, very damaging and deadly. We don't put any value on prophetic words if they truly come from God. If they come from God, God spoke them and they are true. But if God didn't speak them, then they're not true and they have no value. If a prophet claims to have a word or heard a word from God, then no amount of value we can place on it makes it from God or makes it have power. The words themselves have power just like scripture. God, if God's speaking and if, and if the, the gift of prophecy exists, then God speaks and it's like scripture. So this is the argument then. This goes back all the way back to that argument. Does God speak? And if he's speaking, then it holds canon authority. And that's why I don't think uh, that God is speaking in this way anymore. He certainly leads, he guides, and he directs. But does God speak a message that he wants relayed to other people? No, 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 no. He has spoken unequivocally in his word, and that has canon authority. If God was speaking to men today and people today through prophetic ministry that he wanted relayed to other people, then that prophetic word would hold canon authority, and, it, and the canon is sealed. It's done. There's no more scripture. Uh, scripture is prophetic because the prophets have spoken, as Peter describes, as of old. The prophets spoke and were moved by God, and that power is the power of God. These prophets' words did not have power or value because we actually placed value on it. If you take this uh, actually to its extreme or its logical conclusion, then the value of the word of God is only there if we put value on it. That You could apply that to the scriptures then too. A prophetic word is from God as they understand it, as they think it, they think those prof, prophetic words are from God. And the, the scripture is from God as well, spoken by God. And, and that scripture sits there dormant with no power until I put my authority or value on it, then it becomes powerful. 
That's dangerous, man. The power of the word of God is only there if we put value on it, and that is total garbage. The power of the word of God has power in and of itself, no matter what we do with it. It's God's power. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4 verse 12. God's word has power in and of itself. It is not a dormant thing that needs, that's lying there dormant until we put value on it. And neither are prophetic words having uh, becoming powerful by the, us putting value on it because those words are not from God. <laughs> so 25 minute mark, Dan Fairley again points out that we can just get our wires crossed. We can get the word wrong. We can, we can, so in, in the, in relation, in context of prophetic, so they can get stuff wrong. We can get our wires crossed. You know, we can hear God or we think we're hearing God, but we've really got our wires crossed. We can get it wrong. We can say uh, someone uh, was a nurse when they weren't a nurse. This is his words now. And we can just be hearing wrong from God. Again, either God speaks or he doesn't. He won't tell you that that person's a nurse and they end up not being a nurse. That was not from God. He doesn't speak fallibly. And so if you've heard that someone's a nurse and they weren't a nurse, then that was not a word from God. That was maybe your own imagination or whatever, but it wasn't from God. Either God spoke to you or you are a false prophet saying that God says you're a nurse or that I got a word of knowledge from God and it was wrong. If it was wrong, it was wrong and you did not hear from God because God speaks and he speaks unequivocally with full authority and inerrantly. Um, yeah. So at the 25-minute mark, Chris Fallotton says, Oh, you're a truck driver, quote unquote, and that's a word of knowledge. And you know, this is how this works, and this is how that works. And you know, if this, then that, if that, then this. They create this practice around truly a subjective type of experience. You know, you got to hear and kind of f figure out, you know, if you get if you get this, do this right. If you get that wrong, then say this. And then, and, and then the other thing, and this way or that way, then, then there's a word of knowledge. And that's a prophecy or not. Or that's a prophecy, and this is a word of knowledge. Uh, what's what, and where's where? What's up? What's down? I, bruh, who knows? It's just totally subjective. Um, and they're cre and they're training young people to do this. You know, sort of feel the feel the aura in the room, feel the atmosphere. Try to figure out, you know, what God's saying about this. Look at this person and see something on them. See, you know, they're wearing this type of clothes or this type of jewelry or or something of that nature, you know, and do prof some prophetic art and maybe something will come to you, your imagination, and you'll be able to know just prophetic art. Let me just jump on that train for a minute. Does Is there any scripture scriptural basis for something like prophetic art, you know, it's funny always how the prophetic art tends to look like, um, a 1980s big hair band cover of an album. Have you ever noticed that before? Big lion or something like that. And, or, or an airbrush t-shirt. I'm sorry. 
I'm not making fun of the, the prophetic artists. You can work on your craft and, and get better at art, but most of them are pretty terrible. They're airbrush artists or they're airbrush type, type paintings. And yeah, prophetic art. So <laughs> it's, you're, you're not drawing something from God on that. Now, maybe it's inspired by God. But that is not a message or word from God for people. I don't see any practice like that in the New Testament. That is a revelation that people should be following that's on a canvas or a piece of paper or a, a line that looks like it's from a, a 1980s big hair band album. Sorry. No. So um, at the 26-minute mark, Chris Fallotton says that confirmation-type prophecy, uh, quote-unquote, uh, there's no real verse for that in the entire Bible. So I, I don't really know what he's getting at here, but, you know, maybe the person prophesies something and there's a conf confirmation, then you go deeper into that thing, like, oh, yeah, wow, you do live on that street. Or or uh, the word uh, black does mean something to you or, you know, whatever. And then, you you know, you sort of follow that idea down to, I, I don't have any idea where he's getting this from. Where does that pr practice actually come from? So they teach people and coach people. If you get an idea, you get something right, then sort of follow that train, follow that, that, that train of thought and go down that Avenue. <sighs> what? Uh, they do this consistently, you know? Uh, well, I guess I was going in this direction in my life and then something, someone prophesied that this, that, or the other thing, and it confirmed this or that. So there's 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 two things going on here that that they'll that someone who's prophesying will confirm this or that or the other idea then they'll go down that train or someone was walking some direction in their life and that there was a confirmation type prophecy I was going to be an actress or I'm I'm learning to pick up play guitar and and God confirmed that you will be a worship leader in the next year or something um for me to keep going um, in that direction or whatever. So there's no actual scriptural evidence for that, um, uh, no actual verse that I can think of for a confirmation prophecy, either that type of prophecy where you're listening and trying to follow the lead of somebody, you know, they they like backpacking and, and you know, I'm going to go in that direction. And, oh, you like, you know, they notice they're wearing boots. And, oh, are you a backpacker? You know, and, and they that's, a, that's like cold reading science, like how to do a cold reading. Um, and then the confirmation prophecy of where someone is actually confirmed in something they, they, uh, you know, they were going in a direction and someone confirmed something for them. I, I don't see that type of prophecy in the new Testament. If you know of some type of prophetic confirmation type prophecy in the new Testament, that someone, uh, had something confirmed for them. I mean, besides Agabus, maybe <laughs> Paul said, you're going to go to to Rome and you'll die, man. You're gonna be a prison and die. Um, and it happened. Um, that was a confirmation that that prophecy was correct. I don't know. I don't see this, this type of uh, practice in the new Testament. 27 minute Mark then Valentin brings up where Paul writes, do not despise prophetic utterances. And he uh, asked the question, why would they have despised prophetic utterances? He argues it was because people got it or get it wrong, and there's too many of them. If you're living in a prophetic community, then you know they kind of become trite or too much, he says. He expresses, quote, sure, sometimes you will get it wrong, end quote. 
That's not what Paul is saying at all. <laughs> He's saying, make sure that whatever is being spoken of or whatever is being taught as the word of God is God's word and lines up with what the scriptural text is teaching. Be a Berean, you know, be a Berean. Uh, that's what it's saying. Confirm that what this teacher is teaching is scriptural, lines up with Old Testament, what lines up with what we have in the letters of the New Testament. That's, that's what it's saying. Not, we get it wrong, so uh, don't despise a wrong prophecy. <laughs> they make a ways to get out of everything. So Ballatin was wrong this year. He prophesied that Trump would be reelected, and he got it wrong. So he's able to back his way out of these false prophecies and say, yeah, you know, we just live in a, in a, you know, in a, in a prophetic community that always is prophesying. And sometimes our prophecies are trite or too much. And so sure, sometimes we'll get it wrong. So he can excuse himself from his own false prophecies. Nope. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, then at the 28-minute mark, Chris Ballatin says that people have to unite themselves with the spoken prophetic word and faith to make it come to pass or to realize it. And he uses Caleb and Joshua in the Old Testament as examples of Moses speaking a prophetic word that they will go into the promised land to inherit the promised land. And out of those whatever million people Jews that, that only Caleb and Joshua were the only two that realized or followed Moses' prophetic word because they hadn't united their heart with the Israelites. So Joshua and Caleb had not united their hearts with the Israelites. They had united their heart and faith with God. I mean, I don't know, nothing in those passages of scriptures say anything like that. It, it just doesn't say anything like that in those passages about Joshua and Caleb. And, and, and I don't know, you know, is Mo, did Moses even prophesy that they would go to the promised land? God told them to go. Moses is not prophesying that they'll get the promised land. The broader scriptures don't teach this idea. Valentin is building a foundation on an extrapolation of an extrapolation from a text somewhere that he read. Of course, Joshua and Caleb had faith in God, and they wanted to take the promised land, but their faith did not activate any prophetic word. These people in, in Bethel and this movement, they tend to teach that you have to activate prophetic words by, by believing in faith that that prophecy is for you. You know, you take hold of that thing, you make it come into existence, you believe it into existence. Your faith activates this word. It's just nowhere. So, so they actually hold people into, under control because you have to believe my, I say a special word for you, a special future, and I'm talking about your future. And you have to believe that thing into existence. It's just, it's nowhere, you know? Um, so then uh, Valentin says, it repeats the idea again at the 28-minute mark, quote, the value you place in the prophetic word determines its power in your life, end quote. This is just, again, extremely unbiblical. It's a precedent that they're trying to set through their teaching. Either the word of God has power in itself or it doesn't, and it's not God's word. Again, I read Hebrews 4.12 to you. The word of God is powerful and active. 
Uh, either the word of God has full authority or it doesn't. We don't place power onto the word of God by our faith or our thoughts in it. Again, this is this is man-centered. This is a man-centered theology that that you could or would enable the word of God to, to have power, authority, or, va- or value in your life by your faith in it. No, the word of God has power and authority over you, not you over it. Whether you place your faith in it or not, the authority of the word of God is matchless. You don't create power in it by putting faith in it. This is, again, man-centered to the nth degree. Uh, it's really, really crazy. You don't create power. You don't create. You don't create declarations. You don't make things come into existence. You don't make these declarations authoritative by believing in them by faith. They are either from God and authoritative or they're not. Furthermore, I'd actually say that this movement, Bethel and the NAR, ends up doing that with their young people. They actually end up having young people who think they have authority to do these type of things. They have the authority to speak a prophetic word and then either make take on that prophetic word or not. And then by them taking on the prophetic word, it actually gives the prophetic word power that it didn't have before. God's word is in essence powerless until I put my faith in it. This is really, really awful. So so they believe and teach that those prophetic words come from God. And so I give God the, uh, the permission sort of to do those things in my life when I take them on, when I believe in them, when I put my faith onto them, or when I give them power. And that actually, that attitude can then trickle down to the Bible as well. I, man, I, I take that word on. I believe that word. And then I give it the authority and power in my life. No, no. The word of God by itself, this book, this scripture has power over you, not you over it. These words are authoritative. They are true, whether or not you come along and believe in them or not. So that's the upside down uh, nature of, of this movement, what they do. From the 28-minute to the 30-minute mark in the video in, in episode 5 again, Dan Farrelly says that there are ministers and that there are some that are called to the office of minister. And in some sense, I'm sure that they mean prophetic and apostolic because that's how they form their government of their church. But he actually truly believes that it is an apostolic governmental office, not a ministry, not a gifting. They believe in offices and these things, which... I've also previously heard in all the past episodes, they believe that the uh, apostolic and the prophetic are not just giftings, but they are offices. So they've confirmed that in the last episodes. You can go check out my previous episodes if you haven't uh, seen those. You can go check them out yourself on their own those first couple episodes, they describe in detail, and actually Chris Valentin and these other episodes as well describe in detail. They believe that their offices and their their um, their governmental authoritative positions. Um, and again, the book by Shay on Modern Day Apostles. Uh, Bill Johnson's written the foreword to that. 
Um, Chris Vallotton's written a recommendation quote. The title of the book is Modern Day Apostles Operating in Your Apostolic Office and Anointing. I've got it right on the floor over there, so that's why I'm looking down over there. Uh, so they believe that this is an apostolic, apostolic and prophetic is the governmental authoritative structure of the church and that God is reinstating. Jesus told Chris Vallotton that he is moving from denominationalism to apostolic, uh, to the apostolic. Chris says that the gift of prophecy is a gift here, funny enough, and he quotes the scripture passage and clearly lays out that it's a gift. However, they contradict themselves because they, in the previous episodes, have said it's an office. They've said it over and over again. They've confirmed that they believe it's an office, but they say it here again that it's that it's both, that it's a gift and an office, um, but it never says that in the text of Scripture that he, that he uses. It never says that the gift of prophecy and the gift of apostleship and the gift of an evangelist and pastor and teacher and shepherd are gifts. It never says office in that text. Um, please go have a look at it for yourself, Ephesians 4. It's not an office, it's a gift. And if they claim that apostles and prophets hold offices, then they're also missing the other three offices uh, that form church government, namely uh, pastors, evangelists, and shepherds. So where are those three offices? If the if the two offices, apostle and prophet, out of the fivefold ministry are offices, then where are the other three? They glaringly neglect those offices as well. So they believe and teach it. They've shown it before, and I've shown it in past episodes that their writings from their books, they believe in the gift, the office of apostle and prophet. I say gift because it is a gift. <laughs> so I, I got to catch myself. They believe it is an office. And um, because God gave first apostles, then prophets. So those are the two leading offices of their church governance in the NAR and at Bethel. And they confirm it in the, the book, Modern Day Apostles, and in many, many other books. They talk about the governmental uh, offices of apostle and prophet. So at the 30, 30 minute and 15 second mark, Valentin says the office of apostle and prophet is the gift of Jesus Christ, quote unquote. He doesn't quote that anywhere. He doesn't, doesn't give us a scripture reference. He just made that up. Um, like it, it doesn't say that anywhere that I know of. It doesn't say that in Ephesians 4. He's just making stuff up. So it's a gift of Jesus Christ where there's nowhere. Um, he continues to make the distinction that the gift of prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but the office of prophet is a gift of Jesus Christ. So he differentiates between the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of Jesus Christ. I don't know where he's getting it. He doesn't quote a scripture, he just says it. At the 30 minute and 30 second mark, he says, Valentin says that he doesn't know why that's important to the Trinity, that there's a gift of the Holy Spirit in an office gifted by Jesus Christ. He doesn't know why that is. But it's nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere does it say that the office of apostle and prophet are a gift of Jesus Christ. Again, it's an extrapolation on top of an extrapolation. First of all, they find that, that, that the gifts of apostle and prophet are not giftings, but they are offices. And the office 
of apostle and prophet is a gift of Jesus Christ, not of the Holy Spirit. I don't, this, this can only serve to elevate their presupposed offices. Jesus Christ has installed them, according to them, personally into the office of apostle and prophet. Bill, B, Bill Johnson being the apostle at, at Bethel and Chris Valentin being the prophet, installed by Jesus Christ himself. So then Valentin, uh, I'd like to quote him here. He makes a rather long uh, section on, on prophecy. He says, quote, Paul makes a very strong point. Interesting that Christ gave these gifts, okay? The gift of a prophecy is the ability to do something. In this case, prophesy. The office of prophet is not the ability to do something, but to be something, to be somebody. So it takes a calling, a gifting, an anointing to actually have a real ministry. Your calling gives your identity. Your gifting gives your ability and your anointing gives your purpose. So think about this. Let's pause the quote for a moment and break that down. Like, Again, there's this anointing, this extra special anointing that gives you purpose. It, it, it gives you the ability to give the define your purpose. There's that extra special anointing. He says it several times, the anointing, this or that. So um, let's move on. There's no extra special anointing. There is only the anointing that we receive in Jesus Christ when he sealed us in the Holy Spirit at the day of our redemption. When we were saved, we were sealed in the Holy Spirit. And we were anointed, as the scripture says in the New Testament. So here's what he says. He, he continues his quote. So think about this. In the case of a prophecy, if you get my identity from my ability, then I have a performance-based identity. Okay, but in the office of prophet, it's not something I first do. It's something I am. You are a prophet. Okay, so, and then he continues, first goal of a prophet, according to 1 Corinthians 1, I mean Ephesians 4, the primary gift from a prophet, and I would add to the fivefold ministry, is actually to equip the saints with grace. Romans 12 says that since we have gifts, this is uh, for six or a seven, these are quotes now, this is him saying all this, not me. It says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each of us exercise it according, if prophecy, according to the levels of his faith. So what do the fivefold ministry equip us with? The apostle, prophet, evangelist, they equip us with grace. What does grace do? Question mark. It gives us gifts. But Paul in Romans says, points out, they give us different kinds of gifts. So a prophet actually has a certain, if you want to say metaphor, a certain color of grace. And a teacher has a certain color of grace. And an apostle has a certain color of grace. And so forth and so forth. And they are releasing grace on the body of Christ according to their color so to speak, that is giving abilities to the saints so that they can actually do the work of service. In other words, if you have the fivefold ministry actually in your life, you have the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, you're receiving that, that multiple color of grace. By the way, there's actually verses for that in Ephesians chapter 3, talks about a manifold grace of God and that the words multicolored 
word, receiving those multicolored graces into our life. And it's given us the ability, abilities to do the things that teachers can do, those things that pastors can do, those things that prophets can do. And in this case, the prophet is actually releasing grace that actually connects, if you will, I like to say it hooks up the cell phone tower to you. That's all at the uh, 30 minute mark. He says all that stuff. And so this whole section is quite the extrapolation on top of it, extrapolation. And he's basically saying and adding to the scripture that you need an anointing and this, that, and the other thing to be a prophet and, and to be who you are in your destiny, in your identity. It's, it's quite a great fiction that he's created here. There's no biblical basis in this for Ephesians 4. That passage doesn't talk about any of these things. And it's just very fancy word. It's a word salad. You know, it's again, this sort of subjective thing that he sort of created to show how awesome prophets are. Uh, in it, he builds this huge platform for them that basically prophets are untouchable. They're building grace. They're releasing grace on the body of Christ. How could you say a word against them? You know, they have that extra special anointing. You can't touch a true prophet of God. How can you touch a prophet of God? You know, because it's his identity. You know, it's not just his gifting, it's who he is. He is in the office of the prophet of God. And that's what Kenneth Copeland uh, recently, you know, in the coronavirus, all of y'all saw that uh, awesome coronavirus, um, I'm sure, that coronavirus declaration, standing in the office of the prophet of God, I declare that this, that, you know. So this is the same thing. You know, these are standing in the office of the prophet of God. It's that they protect themselves. They insulate themselves because it's his identity. He's in the office. It's really astounding the power that these guys collect to themselves. This whole series, this whole Bethel series, uh, Rediscovering Bethel is confirmation of what they believe. We knew it. They're not saying anything different than before. They have not changed their tune. They believe in the office of a prophet and apostle. They confirm it by showing in this section how powerful they believe they are. They're untouchable. You know, Chris validates here how untouchable they are. You know, even after all the false prophecies this year, uh, biggest of them, uh, the re-election re of President Trump, it didn't happen. He wasn't inaugurated. Whatever conspiracy theory you want to believe that he was not elected or whatever, okay, he's not he's not the president. Um, so, Valentin is a false prophet, and he even created a, a whole theme as well after the false prophecy. He apologized for it, but then he took his apology back because President Biden had not been inaugurated yet. After it was clear that Biden would become the president, Valentin reinstated his apology. Within that apology, he said, basically, you can be a false prophet. You can have prophesied falsely, but still be a true prophet of God. I say impossible. It's impossible. So these guys basically are creating this whole subjective version of what a prophet is and what a prophet can do and how a prophet can prophesy and who he is in the prophetic office, what things they're doing, you know, they're they're painting up uh, colors of grace. They're, they're, they're painting with with like, what, where does that come from? Colors of grace. They're releasing grace onto the body of Christ. 
So these guys are basically creating this subjective version of what a prophet is, what a prophet can do, and how a prophet can prophesy, and he, who he is in his prophetic office. He's painting colors of grace across the body of Christ. I mean, it's tiring. It's a tiring mess just to figure it out. If you might be a prophet in this movement, I mean, if you, if you have the prophetic gift, it's a lot of hoops to jump through to figure it out. I would be exhausted if I were part of this movement trying to figure out if I'm a prophet because it's the highest standard. You know, you, you want to be an apostle or prophet in this movement. That's the feeling of everyone I know who's come out of this movement. They're just exhausted um, of this subjective standard, trying to figure out if they're, they have this or that gifting, trying to figure out if they can release the grace on the body of Christ. Um, and you know, are they painting with the right colors of grace? Uh, wow. And, and where is that even the scripture that prophets release grace onto people and does grace need to be released? We have grace in, in Jesus Christ, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing and the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Ephesians 2, as Titus 3, 5, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. We have grace. We don't need people releasing grace on us. We have it in Jesus Christ. All right, moving on. The 34 to 35 minute mark, Valentin tries to explain how someone could have kingdom focused business life outside the church. He focused on ministry that is kingdom uh, focused and not just doing ministry from the pulpit. This section I really actually appreciate. I'm going to really come out and say, you know, I appreciate him saying, you know, he should have, we should have businesses and, 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 and Christians should be um, a person can do ministry through their lives and their work. Uh, he describes work as sacred, and I appreciate that. Uh, there's no sacred-secular divide. Um, however, Valentin does create a false dichotomy. He expresses this false dichotomy in the thinking that just because people are friendly and I deliver my automotive parts on time and I give the right part and I do all, everything with kindness and, uh, and friendliness, that that is kingdom work. Sure, Christians ought to be friendly and kind and polite while on their vacations, on, on their doing their vocations. Um, our, our, we should be the best and best examples and the and righteous people doing our good deeds uh, and not asking a thing in return. But that alone is not the message of the kingdom of God. So on one hand, he really does do a good job in this section on, on work, but on the other hand, you have to have good works and good words at the same time. The gospel is not a thing that you live, it's a message to be believed and received. So he's he, he's you know mixing things up. You know, basically kingdom work for him is being kind, doing your work with the best of you know, best of your ability, being disciplined, etc. That's kingdom, that's gonna be a gospel example. It, it, it may, it will be a gospel example in the end, but you have to have good works and good words. You, you can't just have someone's life live before you that is a Christian and, and living a, a Christian testimony. You have to, the person who would be an example for the gospel and, and helping, asking people to believe the gospel has to believe in Jesus Christ. 
My testimony is not enough. So, um, again, I really appreciate this section, but he falls short as well because the gospel is a message to be believed. It's not a thing to be lived. You can't win someone to Christ with your testimony, just living your testimony out before someone. It does say, let your good work, good deeds be so, so they can glorify your Father who's in heaven, but you have to, the message of the gospel has to be believed and received. So then at the 36-minute mark, uh, Dan Farrelly asks, can someone declare themselves to be a prophet of the church? And Valentin says no. He explains this by, say, by using the story of David and Nathan. Uh, Valentin lays out the idea that Jesus had favor with God and man, and that if you have favor with God as a prophet, but you don't have favor with man, it's not going to work. So there's a process uh, of sort of becoming a prophet. You have to have this favor and earn this favor. I guess then uh, Valentin as a prophet has favor with God and man, uh, and that's how he's become a prophet or in the office of prophet. Uh, Then Valentin says that you can be anointed by the people and not be anointed by God, as in the story of Absalom in the Old Testament. Here the problem becomes, are prophets today anointed as they were in the Old Testament? I mean, do they put camas oil together with cinnamon and with olive oil and uh, myrrh and everything else together in one oil extraction and put it together and anoint these new prophets into the office of prophet? No, they don't do that. And we don't do that anymore as Christians. That is not a thing that we do. Christ is our anointed head. He has fulfilled the office of prophet, priest, and king in himself completely. And we don't anoint people anymore into offices. And so their uh, construct of anointing is, is bogus, um, it is a construct. It is a creation of their own mind. It's a theological position that says that they have to find some mystic anointing because they don't anoint prophets anymore. Now, some churches actually may. I've seen a real, recently a church um, anoint a leader literally with oil. Of course, they don't use that original camas oil, uh, myrrh, and cinnamon, and, and olive oil uh, concoction. They just use some kind of oil. And, and and that's not the Old Testament uh, act of anointing someone. They, they, they sort of created a thing, an extrapolation of extrapolation. So prophets are not anointed. Um, we do not anoint people into offices anymore because the New Testament governmental leadership is elders, deacons, pastors, or, or a presbyter as Paul lays out in Timothy, Titus, and Peter as well explains that process. So um, the, the scriptures are clear that every Christian is anointed the same in Christ Jesus. Our anointing is linked inextricably to our salvation. You see that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. I've mentioned it in other shows. And in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 to 22, go have a look at those passages for time's sake. I won't read them all. Um, This is a foundational element of their movement that says that some people are more anointed than others. Apostles are anointed. 
Of course, prophets are anointed, which is what they're talking about right now in this uh, episode. If they're anointed by the people, then that might be good because to be a prophet, you've got to be anointed by God, not like Absalom, who was anointed by the people. So he's talking about Absalom here. And, and so this theology has to be dealt with. Uh, um, you know, is there an anointing? Um, that that people receive, and if so, then why don't you do it like the Old Testament prescribed and do all those ingredients into that oil concoction? It's because they don't actually believe it. They don't believe, uh, and they don't do actually what the Scripture says. So, uh, as a New Testament practice, we don't anoint people anymore with that same concoction because it was an Old Testament practice. And to, and in the New Testament, we have elders, deacons, and pastors as our as our governmental leadership. So uh, Chris Fallotton goes on in this section to talk about self-promotion. Uh, basically, a prophet should not promote themselves. He says as well uh, that a lot of people come to Bethel and say, God showed me that I'm meant to be a prophet to Bethel. Uh, then about, this is interesting, right? So if God showed him, then why don't you just, you know, I mean, if, you, if you're listening to God, like Bill Johnson said in his old, in the, in the other uh, episodes, we just listen to God. And if, so if God told this person, um, then why not just install them as a prophet at your church? I mean, if God said so, right? <laughs> but yeah, here we go. So he says, well, God should have showed us if that's the case. Um, if you're meant to be a prophet to us, don't you think God would have showed us too? End quote. So again, this is all very, very subjective. And why not just receive him as a prophet if God told him, right? I mean, they're listening to God at Bethel. So he encourages people who are not recognized by their churches to not necessarily claim to be prophets unless their leadership in that environment recognizes them. And so again, this is, again, extrapolation on top of extrapolation. Is there any evidence for this in Scripture, how prophets are meant to behave and do this and that and the other thing? Um, and if they're listening to God, again, why not just let him be a prophet at Bethel? If God told him, then who are you to say that God didn't tell him, you know? Um, so there's levels of prophets, and there's there's a hierarchy here as well, even though they talk to, to they don't have a hierarchy. Um, so moving on to the 38 minute and 42nd mark, Valentin says, says that self-promotion is a bummer, quote unquote. Uh, whatever you gain by force, you'll have to keep by force, he says. Uh, this is quite ironic because they basically do the same thing. They self-promote all the time. <laughs> He's got his own personal website, his own personal videos. Uh, what are these videos for? He's got his own Instagram. W what are they for if not for self-promotion or Bethel promotion? Um it's Bethel PR. It's what are these? What are these videos for? What are the, what is this series of videos for? If not for self promotion, for Bethel promotion? Hey, look, um, for damage control. These videos are damage control, or they're trying to damage control. They're not doing a very good job of it because they actually confirm everything we've we've understood about Bethel over the years. Um, but it is damage control. Uh, why you know why even do these videos if self promotion is a bummer? then why are you self-promoting? I mean, these videos are self-promotion. I mean, why have him on here to speak about prophecy? Because he's a prophet. He's self-promoting. If he's speaking about prophecy and he is the prophet at Bethel, 
that's self-promotion. So he's, you know, speaking out of both sides of his mouth, double-tongued. Um, they're self-promoting all the time. It's like saying, we're so humble, we're awesome. We're the most humble people we know. <laughs> we're, we're not self-promoting. Everybody else is self-promoting, but not we. <laughs> I mean, if he's saying self-promotion is a bummer and it shouldn't be done, basically, it's exactly what they're currently doing in this episode. They're doing it all the time with all their social media, with pushing, pushing, pushing their brand on the world church. They self-promote all the time. So this is double-tongued. At the 40-minute mark, Valentin starts to begin to use the passage where it says Paul, uh, writing to Timothy, he says, quote, fan into flame the gift that is given to you by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. That's what it says in the passage. Valentin describes that he received a gift by laying on of hands of the presbytery. So Timothy received his gift, received his gift by the laying on of hands. And uh, he explains what the presbytery was and says that the presbytery was a prophetic council of elders. <laughs> uh, I, here we go. Let's explain this. Valentin then says that Timothy, uh, through the presbytery, received the prophetic gift this passage in Timothy doesn't say uh, what the gift was, first of all. It doesn't say that it was prophetic. Paul doesn't say anything about the exact nature of the gift. That's first of all, okay? Secondly, when Chris Valentin says that Timothy received a gift from the presbytery, and he explained that the presbytery was an association of prophetic leaders, he's badly mistaken, he called the Presbytery a prophetic leadership team. Then Valentin also goes on to, to uh, be wrong in saying that they laid hands and released, quote unquote, released a gift to him. Um, and then he says they, quote, airdropped a gift to him, their spirit to his spirit. This, again, is an extrapolation on top of an extrapolation on top of an extrapolation. There's no such explanation as this in that passage. Paul didn't say they airdropped a gift through the presbytery. Now, he's trying to be cute and use kind of modern-day language, but that's not what happened. So let's deal with each thing at a time. First, the presbytery is not a prophetic council or a prophetic leadership team. Presbytery is just that, and it's an association. The word presbytery just means an association. What I gather from these little misteachings like this is that Chris Valentin is certainly a false teacher, a false prophet who uses these things to justify his theological perspective and justify the fact uh, that he teaches and believes that can people can receive impartations or spiritual gifts. He's got to twist. He's got to use this presbytery idea to twist uh, something towards his theological perspective that people can receive impartations of spiritual gifts from people putting their hands on them. He he has to create an explanation on this passage. It doesn't fit so that it justifies his theological position. 
So false teachers typically adhere to larger theological perspectives that they have to jam the scriptures into the square peg so that it fits their theological position. They have to press it and and, and fold it outside of its uh, hermeneutical uh, possibilities so that it fits um, and so that they find justification and evidence for their uh, aberrant theological views. So the passage does tend to indicate that that Timothy received the spiritual gift by this act of laying on of hands, but but Valentin has to take it a step further and say it was by prophetic ordinance or by prophetic declaration or apostolic decree on the laying on of hands that spiritual gifts are given through that means. It is just absolutely false. It builds a false premise on a false premise on a possibility that what this passage says could fit that theological position somehow. However, Valentin then has to jam the Presbytery idea into being a prophetic leadership counselor or something like that. It, it just is, is, is bogus. So let's look at 1 Timothy 4.14, all right? It was where this idea appears. Um, it says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders or the presbytery lay their hands on you. So this word in Greek, presbyterion, means a council, a council of elders, a council of people who have leadership stake in an organization. So if Chris Valentin took out any kind of lexicon, I'll just give him, I'll give him help. BDAG, the main Greek resource, the theological Greek and English lexicon clearly defines the Greek word presbyterion. You just take that out. Take any old one out. You could take, you could take out Strong's Concordance. I mean, that would give you the definition of this word. If Valentin looked it up, it's really, really simple. He could find it. Just look it up. Presbytery does not mean a council of prophetic leaders or a prophetic ministry team or a council, but whatever he wants to make it. It means a council of elders. BDAG defines it as one of the highest Judean councils in Jerusalem, as well as a council connected with the administration of Christian congregations, including that of the elders or presbytery. The word is located in several different places in the New Testament. Um, it's translated as the English word Presbyterian. It is not a council of prophetic leaders or a prophetic ministry team or any such thing. This is a figment of his imagination. He's jammed, like I said, he's trying to take that, that square peg of his theology and jam it into the round hole of true theology and true belief on what our leadership structures should be. And, and Paul actually, as he's to, telling Timothy, this elder group laid their hands on you and you received the gift of pastoral, pastoral ministry. They didn't receive, he, Paul didn't receive the gift from those people <laughs> by, through their arms. He received the gift from God and they confirmed and laid hands on him and, and set him into ministry as a pastor. Um, so they, it was his ordination. 
I mean, that's clear and simple. We've practiced this for years and years. When people lay hands on people, they're ordaining people to gospel ministry, Baptists, Presbyterians, etc. Denominations worldwide have done this for years, as Paul describes, that they don't receive the gift through the arms of the of the prophetic council, <laughs> the Presbyterian. They receive the gift from God for gospel ministry. So when you falsify words to make them mean what they do not mean, you are a pseudo teacher, a false teacher, and badly incorrect. He's not right about this word. These elders, the church within which they governed, they also ordained him to minister. They ordained him and set him apart for gospel ministry as a pastor for the works of ministry. This is what this passage is about. This passage is not about receiving some prophetic gift or some elusive thing that you need as a prophet to lay hands on for. It's about him being ordained in the ministry, and the church has done this for millennia. Um. Matthew Henry here gives a lot of lots of very clear delineation on what's happening to Timothy in this ordination service. It was obviously in his mind an ordination into gospel ministry. Whether that's a gift he had for gospel ministry or the office itself, it's it's neither here nor there. Matthew Henry says it doesn't matter if it's just a gift or if it's the office because he was ordained and the presbytery ordained him by laying on of their hands. The act of them laying on of hands was an ordination. Another commentator as well points out that it might certainly have been an extraordinary gift that Timothy received, but it was the gift for equipping for the public ministry in helping Paul spread the gospel. And, and it happened at that event where the laying on of hands took place. And this commentator also believes it was an ordination into that office of pastoral ministry for the ministry of the gospel. So uh, here we have BDAG, the Greek uh, lexicon of the, of the, of the New Testament, um, helps us understand presbyterion, the word. It's not a prophetic council as Chris would have us believe. So Chris here about the prophetic council, equating that to the presbytery is dead wrong. There, this is not a prophetic council. It's not a prophetic leadership team or anything like that. Valatin builds his theological perspective on falsifying words. So this is uh, a section which he is uh, badly, badly incorrect. At the 41-minute mark, Valentin talks about how gifts pass from one gifted person to the next. This is also unbiblical and untrue. The Holy Spirit gives gifts as he wills. It's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, that these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and it says, who, quote, apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the Holy Spirit is the giver of these gifts. Uh, it's obvious. Out of this passage, and not only is he the giver of the gift and the gifts, but he also distributes the gifts as he wills, not through other gifted people. Uh, this is how they actually build a hierarchy. So they talk, they're anti-hierarchical at Bethel and their movement. They talked about this, how they really don't want to build hierarchies, but this is absolutely a hierarchy. You have to get a gift or receive a gift, namely prophecy or apostleship, which is what is the context of him he's talking about here. You have to go get a gift or receive a gift through gifted prophets. 
And so where do you go get that gift? You have to go to one of the prophets or the apostles and go get that, get one of those gifts. So those are the only two gifts that they put their emphasis on in this movement. Um, they don't ever focus on any other spiritual gifts. I, I've never heard them focus on evangelism or, or helps or the teaching gift or, yeah, I mean, uh, mercy, the gift of mercy. Uh, they, they don't focus on those spiritual gifts. I've never heard them focus on it at least now. Hit me up, give me a video in the comments uh, if they've focused on any of the other spiritual gifts, um, but I've never heard it before. So you got to go to one of these anointed leaders, um, one of the apostolic and prophetic fathers, and get that spiritual gift. Um, so you got to get that gift through another person. And uh, minister, actually, Bill Johnson says it, minister under the anointing. That's how gifts are transmitted one to another, according to Bethel and the NAR. So um, on page 136 of When Heaven Invades Earth, Bill Johnson says, quote, when we minister in the anointing, we actually give away the presence of God. We impart him to others. He has made us stewards of the presence of God. So we, in our anointing, anointed ministry, we can impart him to others. He also says elsewhere, page 108, uh, he says, Christ-like character can never be fully developed without serving under the anointing. Uh, in other words, a ministry like his or any other NAR leader. So you have to serve under the anointing, get next to those anointed leaders and receive their impartations. Um, Shayan in his book, Modern Day Apostles, talks about the impartation all over the place. You have to go to one of these apostolic centers, get that impartation, get that ministry, and 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 find that uh, that that gifting. Get someone to lay hands on you and to give you the gift. Uh, but again, here we see in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, the Spirit gives the gifts as he apportions to each one individually as he wills. He wills it. He transmits the gifts. No person transmits spiritual gifts. This is uh, near or approaching blasphemy. I mean, Valentin goes on to finish uh, reading the passage and then says later, by the way, quote, Timothy was an apostle. Paul never calls Timothy an apostle. It's just laughable. There's no... I, Again, hit me up in the comments. I looked. I couldn't find. There's no place that Timothy calls, that Paul calls Timothy an apostle. I double-checked with a quick glance to the New Testament uh, just to make sure I wasn't mistaken, but I didn't find a single place where, place where Timothy is named as an apostle. It could be wrong. Please hit me in the comments if you know a place where Timothy is called an apostle in the New Testament, um, and I'm willing to be corrected. But... I didn't see it anywhere in the New Testament. And I, I did a, give a quick look through the word apostle in the New Testament, and it just didn't appear uh, in relation to Timothy. Um, so at the 40 to 50 minute mark, so 40 minute to 50 minute mark, Valentin says that BSSM, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, has impartation sessions where they impart spiritual gifts. And then he lays out a very weak case that impartation of spiritual gifts is meant for us to practice in church. He uses Moses laying hands on Joshua and Romans 1 and this passage in Timothy, which we just showed is not an impartation of a spiritual gift. It's an ordination of a pastor 
into pastoral ministry. Chris goes on to say that they do this pretty regularly at BSSM. I can imagine these impartation sessions. Maybe you've seen videos of of what and what they do and the chaos and that those sessions embody. Uh, we know that this is unbiblical, an unbiblical practice that doesn't hold any basis in the New Testament message. At the 43-minute uh, mark to 44:45, Valentin lays out a basis for pro- false prophets. He says that we have lots of grace and mercy for teachers who misquote the Bible or interpret it wrongly or say something odd. We have lots of grace for those people, and we'll go and correct them and coach them up. Coach them up. I like that term. They coach them up and, and stuff like that. But for false prophets or people who prophesy, we don't have much grace. Valentin communicates that there is an Old Testament mentality in the New Testament church that prophets must be correct. The standard of prophecy did not change in the New Testament. Prophecy must be correct. He cannot point to the New Testament prophetic that I'm aware of that was incorrect. Name me one single prophet in the New Testament that was incorrect and got a prophecy wrong. Um, and if they're speaking of uh, in the office of the prophet of God, they must be correct. If the if they're saying if they're making so much connection to the Old Testament and how the prof- prophetic was done in the Old Testament, then that prophet, the Old Testament prophet, had to be correct, or he was stoned. I don't know of a stoning in the New Testament, but if you're going to quote Old Testament scripture and say this is how the prof- prophet of God worked in the Old Testament and link the anointing that was also practiced in the Old Testament then you must apply the same hermeneutical principle across the entire practice of the Old Testament. So Valentin here makes parallels to the Old Testament practice of prophecy. The prophet of God, who was anointed by God, was given that office by God and was never wrong. If he was wrong, he was a false prophet, period. So if he's going to say, uh, uh, allude to the Old Testament as the way prophets would be should practice in the New Testament, then you got to apply the same pattern. The hermeneutical principle applies across the board. So you can't have, there's no such thing as a false prophet in the Old Testament. There were such things. They were uh, quickly dealt with, though, or should have been quickly dealt with. <laughs> so if Balaton wants to play that game, then we'll play that game. The Old Testament prophets. Let's play the Old Testament prophets game. (laughs) He relates his ministry to the office uh, of the prophet of the Old Testament, but there is no office of the prophet in the New Testament. People had a prophetic gifting. We can admit that, but we do not have an office anymore. No one in the New Testament was anointed with that uh, awesome concoction of oil into the office of prophet in the New Testament that I'm aware of. Again, hit me up in the comics. I don't know of anybody in the Old New Testament who was anointed into the office of prophet. It just didn't happen. So uh, we can maybe make the argument there there were prophetic giftings. I'll give it that Agabus and others who prophesied to Paul that he would be bound up if he went to Jerusalem and, and other small places here and there. But there's no description of an office of the prophet. So where do you get the office from? You have to get it from the Old Testament. Johnson and Valentin themselves and others in the NAR who have taught on the office of prophet have made their connections to the office of prophet in the Old Testament. 
not the New Testament. So if that's the case, then you have to say from the Old Testament prophetic standards that a prophet cannot be wrong. They make correlations to the office and the prophet being anointed as in the Old Testament. So there's no office of prophet. There's no anointed prophet in the New Testament. So this correlation to the office of prophet in the Old Testament then has to have the same standards of prophecy, and it applies to that office today then. So, um, but, but we know that they're not holding that same standard. They're not anointing anybody with that awesome concoction of oil that's in the Old Testament. Um, you cannot say one aspect of the office of prophet applies to today and not other aspects. You cannot claim you're an anointed prophet in the office of prophet of God and be able to be incorrect. The Old Testament does not allow for that. If Allerton makes these correlations and analogies to the Old Testament practice, then you have to hold the whole thing. You can't just pick and choose and say, I'm cherry pick, and that's inconsistent hermeneutics. Um, the office of prophet and its functions and requirement requirements are not consistently applied or interpreted by these guys. Does God intend that the practice of the Old Testament office of the prophet was to continue? If so, then the normative principle of the office of prophet applies in every way. The things that made a prophet a prophet as well and the regulations would still apply. So um, one of my professors in, in Bible college and seminary, uh, Dr. William Larkin, expounded on the normative principle in his book, Cultural and Biblical Hermeneutics. And he said, principles should be framed for those commands and promises that call for the indirect application of their statements of truth. They should also be framed for positive and negative examples drawn from historical narratives. A principle consists of the underlying meaning in the text that can be stated in universal or absolute terms. The principle should also line up with the writer, writer's intended meaning. So the normative principle can be applied when a prophecy has come to pass or a greater theological truth has overruled it in the New Testament, i.e. the office of prophet being fulfilled by Christ himself. So we don't need the office of prophet anymore because Christ has fulfilled completely in himself the office of prophet, priest, and king. So thus there are no longer the office of prophets. Um, the, these Old Testament principle, principles do not apply anymore because we have Christ as our high, high priest, uh, prophet, and king. So in Hebrews, we get confirmation of this, that Jesus is the priest and prophet and holds and fulfills those offices. Read the whole book of Hebrews. It's very clear. Jesus Christ has, is, is anointed above his fellows, meaning there's no one in comparison. Jesus Christ is anointed above all others. So you can't just take this one uh, thing out of context or this story of that prophet or that story of that prophet and say, hey, I want to hold and apply it to my office of prophet in the New Testament, in the New Testament times. You can't do that. You can't pick and choose. You can't cherry pick. Proper biblical hermeneutics will not allow him to be selective like that. Either it is all the way or it isn't at all. Either it's exactly like in the, in the Old Testament and we apply all the principles of prophetic office in the Old Testament to today, or it's not at all. 
So we can't just pick and choose. Uh, Jesus Christ has fulfilled the office of prophet. End of story. At the 45, 30 minute mark, Balatin says that the New Testament is revelation perceived. And the Old Testament, it was revelation received, meaning the Old Testament prophets just received a revelation. You got it, you spit it out. And in the New Testament, you have to perceive it. You have to understand and delineate sort of what it means. You know, it's that tuning in thing. You know, you got to tune in to hear and understand what God's really saying and then really perceive it and try to uh, decipher the message. Again, here comes the sub subjective nature of prophecy. We have to perceive it and figure out what is this and that, and what does it mean by this? Or It's so oblique and ubiquitous that you don't really know what the prophet's saying or when he talks about, you know, I see something blue in your future or something random like that. I, I, I'm seeing, you know, does this or that make a sense to you? And, and they're actually, it's a cold reading, you know, uh, like, like psychics, really. He says in the Old Testament, my spirit was not alive, quote unquote. So those who received the revelation from God, it was an occasion, he said, and they weren't spiritually alive, quote unquote. So they had, they just had to receive what God said. He says, I was spiritually dead, meaning uh, the people in the Old Testament who received prophecies were spiritually dead. Wow. I mean, where do you get this? That people in the Old Testament weren't saved? Um, look at the Hebrews Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11. Go and look. Their faith was credited to them as righteousness. I, that's, that's a pretty big stretch. So all those prophets in the Old Testament, all those people who received a revelation, they, their spirits weren't quickened. And they were just spitting out and regurgitating the message. I mean, this is bad. Then Valentin goes on to say that the people in the Old Testament who were receiving these words, receiving these revelations, did not have righteous hearts. That they weren't righteous. And this really goes quite clearly against Scripture. Let, let's just take a, a quick cursory look at Hebrews chapter 11, for instance. All those people in the Old Testament, and the list goes on. Noah, Abraham, they believed God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. So they were just, not only were they justified, but they were counted righteous. So he's wrong about that. I mean, pseudo-teaching again. All these people in the Old Testament were not righteous. <sighs> He's overlooking a lot of scripture. They were justified. They were saved. They, just, just like you and I are saved. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And they were looking forward to Jesus, to some promise coming, and believed this God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. Um, they didn't know who to look to particularly, specifically, but they knew that God was just and righteous, and they believed him. And it was credited to them as righteousness. Just like today, your faith is credited to you as righteousness. Valentin has a really, really skewed um, biblical view here that the Old Testament folks were not righteous or not saved or not regenerate. No, 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 no. At the 46-minute mark, Balatin then says that they didn't have the Holy Spirit then, and that all goes against several, several passages of Scripture that shows that the Holy Spirit was indwelling people at the time. David, 
we think when he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of my salvation, Psalm 51. Prophets as well in the Old Testament says that the spirit of the Lord came upon them. We also see King Saul. We see that the spirit of the Lord departed from him. And the spirit of the Lord departs from the temple and other instances throughout the Old Testament. We do see the Holy Spirit working in redemption. The spirit of the Lord uh, was not limited to prophets, priests, and kings, although there were people who were, for instance, a holy ab in the Old Testament were gifted with a gift of crafting so that he could build the temple. We also see the spirit regenerated all the believers during the Old Covenant period. This is seen in passages like Hebrews 11. The Holy Spirit appointed prophets to speak God's word, priests to intercede for the people, and the kings to lead Israel against the enemies of God. The writer of Hebrews says the list shows in the list of faith, um, we have this long and, and what more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That's in Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. The writer of Hebrews indicates that all of these people were justified by faith in God. So there was plenty of regenerate and saved people in the Old Testament. He's wrong. So I don't know what else to say. I mean, for him to say that there was no saved people, no righteous people in the Old Testament is flat wrong. The Lord used these individuals to advance his plan of redemption pointing ultimately to Christ, the true prophet, priest, and king, whom the Spirit anointed as our prophet, priest, and king, who eventually secured our eternal salvation. They were looking forward to Christ's coming. We're looking back at Christ's uh, coming. This is highly incorrect of Valadin to say that people were evil and people who received the prophetic words or revelations in the Old Testament had dark hearts and were sinful and not regenerate. So his point is basically they just received the word. They were unregenerate. They just didn't know what to do with it, and they just told what God told them. Um, they didn't perceive it. you got to perceive in the New Testament time. Um, now, we have the Holy Spirit, and we can perceive what those crazy, odd, and weird practices mean. And they prophesy so vaguely things that could mean anything, really. And so you're meant to perceive those words. You know, they're, they're not really straightforward prophecies like you think of Nathan. Think about what Nathan said. You know, when Nathan went to King David, he said, you are the man. <laughs> there was nothing vague about it. David knew exactly what he was talking about, and he repented because he had been the man of the story that Nathan told him about, you know. Um, yeah. They weren't unregenerate in the Old Testament. Valentin is wrong here. God, through his spirit, regenerated all those believers in the Old Covenant period. So then uh, Valentin says that uh, from 1 Corinthians 14, where it says that those who are listening to a prophetic word should, quote, quote unquote, pass judgment. That means that they pass judgment on a prophecy that is going to happen in the future. They can't pass judgment immediately on a prophecy. They have to pass judgment and apparently immediately on the future prophecy 
whether it's from another spirit or the Holy Spirit or from another human source or what have you. We're meant to judge whether that's from the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Again, it, it's very subjective. How does someone judge whether a future prophecy is going to happen? Well, it's in prophesied, for instance, that Trump would become president. If someone had judged at that time his prophecy, they would have said, yeah, sure, that's from the Holy Spirit, of course. You notice that no one prophesied that Biden would become president. Isn't that interesting? Uh, but it didn't come to pass. Uh, so God cannot lie. Therefore, Valentin, by his own measure and standard of how to judge a prophecy, uh, it does not meet the standard. His own, he doesn't meet his own standard. But of course, his standard is not applicable to himself because he just said God cannot lie. So if the church that he was part of at the time when he, when he prophesied, Bethel, said, oh yeah, that's from the Holy Spirit. But in the end, it did not come to pass. The prophecy was not from the Holy Spirit and that church judged falsely. So the false prophet prophesied falsely. They said it was from the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, that we received that word is from the Holy Spirit. And then it didn't come to pass. It's obviously not from the Holy Spirit. They judged falsely. That makes Bethel false judges of what is and is not the Holy Spirit. And it makes Valentin a false prophet because he did not hear from the Holy Spirit. If something doesn't come to pass, According to his own words here, it was not from God. So in that prophecy that he prophesied last year that Trump would become president, what do we make of that? Who, who was it from? Who was that prophecy from? It wasn't from the Holy Spirit. So by his own measure, that Valentin has created his own subjective formula that he's created here for measuring a prophecy falls down on its face according to his own prophecies. So at the 48-minute mark, Valentin reiterated their idea that they are an R&D culture. Bill Johnson has talked about that in another episode. They are research and developers in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, he says you should research and develop. You should take risks and try new stuff, basically, to, to be able to know what the Holy Spirit's doing in any given situation. So Valentin says that they should allow for failure, basically. R&D cultures allow for failure. You, you risk greatly, and then you allow for failure because you have to research, you have to develop stuff. You're developing something. Um, failure isn't final, he says. So the, the question that arises for me, do we fail as Christians in how the Holy Spirit works in our lives? Either the Holy Spirit works or he doesn't. Either it's true or it's not the Holy Spirit. Either it's the Holy Spirit or it's not. If it's failure, it was not at the initiation of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God does nothing wrong. He does all things well. Just as Jesus said. Jesus said he does all things well. The Holy Spirit makes no mistakes he doesn't say, well, you know, I guess we'll just chalk that one up to a boo-boo. <laughs> no, the Holy Spirit makes no mistakes. He doesn't make any boo-boos. He leads people truly without falsehood, always, all the time. Again, this whole R&D culture idea is misleading. The Holy Spirit makes no mistakes. Um, either the Holy Spirit leads you truly or it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a certain element in which we learn how to use our spiritual gifts. Now, we don't all come out as Charles Spurgeon's when we have received the gift of teaching. We have to exhibit our gifts. We have to use them. However, those are just in practice. You know, God gives gifts to men, and he allows us to practice them by faith to do our best at it. 
But with prophecy, this is a different beast altogether. Prophecy claims innately that people are hearing from God, that they have a word from God, either for specific people or for the church at large. For instance, Valentin's prophecy, sorry to harp on it, but his false prophecy about President Trump. As far as I understood, that was a word for the larger church, not just Bethel Church necessarily. The problem with this view of them alone being an R&D culture unto themselves is just that they are not an R&D culture to themselves. It spills over like it did with this prophecy. It spills over into the global church, and they're propagating this idea that you should be an R&D culture if you're a church. Um, these prophecies, these national prophecies belong to American Christians, apparently, by the very nature of the prophecy. With a prophecy gift, an office is that it claims that it, it is innately hearing a revelation from God. They call it revelation. They, they per, per, perpetrate it as a revelation. It is a revelation from God, a new revelation. And it gives them specific revelation, too. If you get it wrong, then your research and development department is getting it wrong too. If research and development is getting it wrong, then the product is flawed. If you're putting, you know, research, funny enough, research and development uh, organizations, or let's say Apple, Apple R&D department doesn't put a product or put R&D and a product out into the public that is flawed, like let's say, for instance, they, they're trying to build a new computer and they build a new computer, but they've got some serious, serious flaws in it. It just doesn't work, right? And you think they would put that, that computer model to production? No. But what they're doing is they're putting their R&D department, their, their trial and error out to the public, to the global church, and calling it something that you should actually imitate and mimic. You should do this, what we're doing. We're doing uh, fake signs and wonders. Um, uh, we're doing R&D department type ministry, so you should do it too. Um, but but Apple doesn't put out, sorry, Apple's R&D department doesn't put out flawed products, and Bethel is doing that. They're putting out flawed products, false prophecies, false visions and revelations, false this and that and the other thing. So their R&D department, the mistakes that their R&D department makes at Bethel is being broadcast to the global church and, and asking the global church to do this type of ministry too. God either communicates directly and it's understood or it wasn't God. Uh, that's what I don't get about these guys. God is not ubiquitous. He's not unclear. He's not oblique. God doesn't create vague word pictures where you kind of have to find out and figure out and discern and perceive what the prophecy was, as Valentin says in this episode. God is clear, direct. His word is understood. For instance, the theological viewpoint, the perspicuity of Scripture, it, it means that the Scripture can be understood. God's not confusing. He doesn't speak in word pictures. I mean, maybe besides Jesus and his parables. But interestingly enough, what the, the disciples asked him what the parables mean. What, why do you speak in parables? He said it's to, to hide the truth from those who cannot see. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a little different, right? So, 
Um, these young people think they're learning to listen to God at BSSM and these play and, and this minute and this movement, but they're not listening to God. They're hearing their own imaginations. They're training them to think about their own imaginations. Just imagine, they say, you know, in Firestarters class and at, at BSSM, they're just saying, imagine, you know, kind of look at the person and try to get a, a mental image. This is actually training them to start thinking and imagining what you think. They train them to look at the person, you know, kind of get a perception and give them a picture then. That's how they prophesy. That's how they train um, people in their class, in their Firestarters class, how they train people at BSSM. It's actually the whole contents of their training. It's their whole curriculum. There's no Bible at BSSM. There's no hermeneutics, no exegesis, no just biographies from people who are in the Word of Faith NAR stream. Bethel, as they describe it, is an R&D department. For instance, BSSM, Firestarters, Sozo, etc. At Bethel, they encourage people to just start speaking, imagine. If your imagination is right, then it's a word from God. Um, and if it's not, then you're just learning. You know, you're just you're just uh, research and developing. Um, it's just that type type of prophetic utterance did not happen in the New Testament. So then Valentin quotes 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18, that seems to say that most prophecies will reveal intentions and attitudes of man. Valentin took that to mean for many years that he basically should call out the sins of people in prophetic ways, and that over years, seven years of prophetic ministry in Weaverville, that he would do that. He consistently called out the sins of people during one sermon where Danny Silk was preaching uh, apparently Danny Silk asked the congregation, if you have a grievance against anybody, go and see them. And so during the service, it seems like at the end, Valentin expressed that he had a line of people waiting on him to talk to him. Hundreds of people had a grievance with him. He had been calling out their sins for years and years. Valentin said it broke his heart. So he changed his mind about what prophecy is. Interesting. Can you... Um, you know, can you just say, wait a minute, I think prophecy is something else now. After you've experienced some, you know, people being hurt by your ministry, can you just all of a sudden say, well, prophecy is something else then? So he changed his heart that prophecy is no longer calling out sin. Unfortunately, that is actually completely inaccurate. If you look at prophetic scope of ministry in the scriptures, it's mostly calling out sin. I could think of maybe one or two prophetic type things where the prophet wasn't calling out a sin and asking and calling people to repentance. It's mostly weep and wail, you sinners, in the Old Testament. Uh, your idolatry has come before the note, the nose of God, and he is ready to strike. <laughs> God, through the prophets, called Israel back to repentance away from idolatry and the like. I don't see a New Testament prophetic ministry actually basically telling people how good they are. And to find the gold, they said, quote unquote, find the gold. He said, I find the gold in the, in the dirt of people's life. Valentin claimed that, that this is what prophecy is. I don't see that anywhere in the New Testament pattern. Just try to show me where someone tried to find the gold in the dirt of people's life. Uh, just give me one instance. Hit me up in the comments, Chris, where or, or anybody else, where, where a prophet in the New Testament found the gold hidden in the dirt of people's life. I don't see it. Um, 
Yeah, so he's again creating a case for their style of prophecy, which is basically telling people how great they are. You know, just just keep going. You're doing great with God. Just keep going. You're on the right the right track. You know, um, yeah, I don't see it. Bill Johnson and Chris Valentin are very good at getting emotional. So Chris Valentin sort of gets emotional in the same way. You know, he gets choked up um, the same way Bill Johnson does. You know, he said that experience where people lined up to tell him how offended they were at him really broke his heart. And he's just, he's, he's, you know, he's weeping and he's, he's getting emotional. Valentin started to cry uh, that he had hurt so many people and, and with calling out their sin, presumably, I guess. So this is, uh, uh, shows again, uh, we shouldn't do that type of prophecy. You know, it hurts people. You know, we shouldn't call out people's sin. I, I just don't see that type of prophecy anywhere in scripture. So they're sort of creating their own thing, you know, really their own R&D culture that they describe um, where they only honor people. It's only, you can only say positive stuff about people. Um, so yeah, it's actually, you know, I've got a theory why people go to BSSM. Why go there? Because they basically tell you how awesome you are, you know, and, um, who doesn't want to hear how awesome you are. So that's why people are going there. You know, um, they're going there because they're surrounded by this, they're love bombed funny enough. So what are some of the, what are, what are one of the main, uh, things that uh, cults do is love bomb people. So, their prophetic type of ministry, their prophetic style of ministry is to love bomb people, basically. So, um, yeah, it's not a New Testament pattern. So at the 55, 30-minute mark to the 56-minute mark, Bowton claims that this is the ministry of reconciliation, where you basically find the gold in people's lives and you hold it up to him and say, look, this is how God made you. This is how wonderful you are in God's eyes. And then people actually fall down and are convicted. That's a quote. So um, this is not the biblical pattern of conviction. You know, Jesus actually said um, the work of the Holy Spirit um, in, he described the Spirit's coming. John 16, verse 8 is where he describes what the Holy Spirit will do. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So that's the Holy Spirit's work. He doesn't convict by showing you how great you are. He convicts you by showing you your sin and your need for righteousness and your need for uh, to be to have uh, the wrath of God be satisfied. Because you you will be otherwise you will be judged. So it's sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts you that you're a sinner. He convicts you that you need the righteousness of Jesus Christ or else you will fall under the judgment of God. That's the biblical pattern of conviction. It's not that to show you how great you are. Then you'll be convicted. Uh, reconciliation is realizing that you are not right with God. Realizing that you have sin that holds you back or out of a fellowship with God. You repent for that sin. You trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross in your place, and you turn to God in faith. That is how man is reconciled to God. The ministry of reconciliation cannot take place without that. So in their prophetic ministry, they create a pseudo-reconciliation with God that is not true reconciliation. And the scriptures describe it here. 
It's wild. They actually believe that their reconciliation, where they tell people how how awesome they are and pull out the gold in their lives, that that is the biblical ministry of reconciliation. And it is not. It's not. Jesus even says the Holy Spirit will convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And being reconciled to God is putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the atoning for the atonement of your sins and repenting. That's reconciliation. So at the 56, 37 minute mark, uh, they move into the section that they named by themselves. They named it the prosperity gospel, poverty, riches, and wealth. They try to cover Chris Valentin's book, which is called Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. <laughs> here, Dan Fairley quotes a rather long section of his book, and I'm going to quote it here. So, quote, number one, wealth is the ability, the resources, the strength, and the wisdom to create positive outcomes in the midst of lack, poverty, or emptiness. Number two, wealth is light in the darkness, healing in sickness, prosperity in poverty, wholeness in brokenness, favor in obscurity, love for the unlovely, beauty for ashes, and victors among victims, end quote. They read this section to be able to disprove, basically, or say, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, but rather, I believe in this type of wealth, you know, but of course, they're not addressing the true elephant in the room, as it were, that they have a prosperity statement before every single offering that they receive. They have offering readings one, two, three, and four, and I'll post those in the link in the description. They read those before every before they take up every offering. While I was there, they read, I think it was uh, reading number one. And it's basically, we believe for, it's a, it's a prosperity statement. So Valentin says, yeah, if, if you don't like prosperity, you're not going to like heaven, end quote. So basically throwing the argument again back at the critics saying the prosperity is actually God's plan for people because it's what will happen in heaven. If you don't like it now, if you don't like, think God wants prosperity for you now, then you're not going to like heaven because he's going to give it to you then. The question on the table is, does God promise prosperity for this life, and is it linked to the atonement of Christ? Is it a birthright for all born-again believers? This is what the prosperity gospel proponents believe and teach, and Bethel and Bill Johnson himself teaches it. Bill Johnson has taught that God, through Jesus Christ and through his death on the cross, has uprooted the roots of sin, sickness, and poverty. They do teach it. We know they teach it. They've taught it. We've heard it. We've seen it. Bill Johnson himself in his books, in his videos, they believe it. They teach it. So in this video, Valentin keeps on going to continually make the case that prosperity is what God really wants for us in this life because heaven is described as a prosperous place. Valentin makes the case that wealth cannot be inherently evil because heaven is a place where wealth uh, are the descriptors. Uh, the imagery of heaven is wealth, and from that, Valentin makes the case that wealth cannot be inherently evil. I'm not sure what he's referring to. No one has said that, that I don't think, I don't know anybody who said that, that wealth is inherently evil. The Bible does say, though, in 2 Timothy 6, uh, verses 9 through 10, that money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
So I don't know. I, you know, I think that again, they're, they're, they're not answering the question. The question is, do you believe that, that, that uh, the atonement uh, provides for your health, wealth, and prosperity? So um, no one's arguing that, that, that wealth is inherently evil. No one says that, but that is not their critique. So Chris, Chris, doesn't get it straight here. We don't critique that that wealth is inherently evil. We don't we don't say that that's what you're saying. We don't say that. That's not our critique of the prosperity gospel. Our critique of the prosperity gospel is that you teach and others in this movement teach that health, wealth and prosperity are bound up in the atonement of Jesus Christ that he won for you on the cross and that if you're not wealthy then something's wrong that wealth ought to be pursued by every Christian because it is a birthright and purchased for you through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But they don't answer the question, not in this video. They just sort of, um, it, 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 it's again, it's sort of gaslighting. You know, if you don't believe that, that prosperity, you're not going to like heaven. You know, <laughs> no, one, no one says that, you know, is prosperity bound up in the atonement for this life and they teach it and they have taught it and 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 i mean it's in it's in every book i don't know what to say like they they believe it i've not read valentin's book either on this but that quote kind of yeah seems that they believe it at the one hour and 35 minute mark one hour, one zero zero and 35 seconds. Valentin then says, every time you take something too far, you tend to fall off the cliff in some place. So are those offering blessings that you read every time you take an offering at Bethel? Are those too far? They recite them every week. Is that too far, Chris? Each blessing statement basically says, you better be wealthy. <laughs> God is going to give you wealth, and then you can put your money in the offering bucket. Um, and when we give today, that God is going to repay us for giving. If you go off a cliff, Chris, is, is your um, church going off a cliff every week when you read your offering blessing, that God's going to repay you for, um, for giving today? So at the one hour and 45 second minute mark, uh, Chris makes a statement. I'd like to read this whole quote. He says, quote, people make statements like money has nothing to do with our relationship with God. Well, that's true. And I'd like to say it's true until it isn't. Because the challenge is, is that, for instance, Deuteronomy 8, 18, God said, Moses, tell the people that I'm that I'm going to, um, I'm going to give you the power to make wealth. Now that'd be tough enough, but then he finishes by saying, "So that I will confirm my covenant, which I made with you." So, and you get an, you've got Abraham, and it. The, the, so this is this quote. I'm quoting him. It's not all clear, but the Genesis talks about that God made Abraham wealthy. You have Solomon who has a dream. And in the dream, God says, you know, give, kind of like, I'll give you three wishes. You know, he basically says, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. And he said, man, uh, what I need, you give me some great people. 
I'm like a little child. I have no idea how to lead these people. I need wisdom. And God goes, well, because you did it, didn't ask for wealth, because you didn't ask for the head of your enemy, because you didn't ask for power, it goes to this list. I'm going to make you the wealthiest king who ever lived. There will be no king before you who was wealthy or any king after you. And he goes on to give this prophetic declaration, again with the prophetic declarations. And basically Solomon got so wealthy that in gold, that silver was not even valuable. I, I mean, they try to say, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, but we believe it. <laughs> they basically make this case and create a framework for wealth that God really wants people wealthy. So, I mean, I, I don't know what they're hoping to accomplish with this prosperity gospel section, that they actually teach it and believe that God wants people wealthy. You know, Valentin even links it to the covenant of God right there so that I can establish, I'll make you wealthy so that I can establish my covenant with you, um, that the wealth that God was giving Israel was a basis or a starting point for the covenant. I, I mean, you know, they believe it. They believe the prosperity God. These guys believe it. They teach it. They believe that the prosperity gospel is the truth. They don't deny it. They don't say, no, no, we don't hold to the prosperity gospel. They don't distance themselves. They create newness, actually a fondness for that type of teaching by saying that it's not about money. It's about wealth. So they're splitting hairs. They're saying, we don't believe in the money thing. We believe in wealth. It's the same thing, basically. So this entire section, um, they don't distance themselves actually from the prosperity gospel. So it's sort of, I mean, you can watch it for yourself and see what you think, but I don't see them actually saying, we do not hold to the prosperity gospel that the that we believe that prosperity is bound up in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Bill Johnson has taught that before. He's taught what I just said. So they have not distanced themselves from the prosperity gospel in this section. And they read a prosperity statement every week before they, uh, you know, before they take their offering. So they believe it. So from about the 110 to 113 minute mark, it's a refreshing little section about him talking about how he cared for his employees, how he, was, how he tried to be do his best to be a good businessman. Um, and I'm going to say it's refreshing, actually, in this little section, three minutes or so, that he doesn't talk about theology for a moment. Because <laughs> he's probably a pretty good businessman. And it was probably a pretty good business decision for them to bring him to BSSM to run their school of supernatural ministry or start it. He's an entrepreneur, um, no question. And um, it's refreshing though for this three minutes that he doesn't talk about theology for a sec. So at the 113 minute mark, then Dan Fairley talks about a moment when Bethel had this big split basically. And he said that the Holy Spirit came in power. They had the laughter movement take over. He said half the congregation left. Wow, I thought that was really interesting. They admit it. It's a church split, you know. Um, half a congregation leaving is a church split. So they split. Maybe they didn't form another congregation, but they split the Holy when the Holy Spirit came, Danny said. And so the laughter movement started. They probably shortly after that uh, Toronto blessing when, when Bill Johnson came back and, and bought it back. Um, I guess he sort of implemented the Toronto blessing there. So it's a church split. That's interesting. Um, 
And I'd be interesting to maybe talk to some of those people. So at the 117 minute mark, they describe how much Chris Valentin makes and his annual salary is $115,000 a year. I was actually very surprised with that. Um, I thought it would be more. But that's uh, actually probably pretty modest for his position, what he oversees. I I'm sure he makes much more than that with books, book deals, trips, speaking engagements, he probably makes uh, at least as much as uh, his Bethel salary on extraneous income from travel, speaking engagements, books, etc. I'd be almost sure that he makes uh, more than his salary from Bethel itself. That must be just his Bethel salary. Um, I'd, I'd guess he at least makes 400000 a year with his whole salary, with everything he does, investments, etc. Um they, you know, he's sitting there in an Instagram picture, sitting and standing in front of a Lamborghini. So, I mean, you know, he makes a lot of money that the hundred that that's his Bethel salary. So he said, look, we're not millionaires, preachers. We're not millionaire preachers and pastors. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why, why bring this up? Why speak about his salary at this moment? It's interesting. No one asked him, no one forced him to bring his salary up, but he does. Hour and 19 minute mark, Farrelly says that we were in the will of God, what the Lord was doing at the, with the church split. We were at the heart of what the Lord was doing, but we had stacks of bills that we couldn't pay. So basically that speaks that they didn't, they didn't believe the prosperity gospel. Yeah. But basically, they're, they're turning this church upside down in those years. Uh, people were leaving in droves and droves, he says, but they were right in the heart of what the Lord was doing. So they're obeying God, turning this church upside down and having financial crises um, that proves that they don't believe the prosperity gospel. Okay. Bethel has those seasons of not being able to pay bills too. So how could we believe in the prosperity gospel? That's not an argument. The hour and 19 minute mark to the hour and 22 minute mark, Valentin goes through basically how he's earned his living by flipping houses. His book, he says his book, Supernatural Ways of Royalty, sold 50,000 copies and an average book sells 5,000 copies. So God was just given more and more favor. He's basically building his wealth through these means. I think it's an interesting section. Why does he need to share all this with us? What's... Well, why? You know, it's it's transparent unless he's hiding something. I don't think so. But why share all those details to basically show that they don't preach the prosperity gospel? He seems to claim that just by hard work and dedication, you can build your wealth. And so it's interesting why he would share this. I'm not real sure, but it's an interesting section. So at the one hour and 23 minute mark, Dan Fairley confirms that Chris Valentin is in the office of a prophet the quote-unquote office of the prophet. He, he holds an official office. Again, just to repeat, they believe, they teach it. Chris Valentin holds the office of prophet at Bethel and in their network in ministry. The hour and 24-minute mark, they describe uh, sort of this snowball effect that Valentin's life was going through. He describes at that point in his life that he sold a few books after things are starting to go really well, Fairly said then that God anointed you, the Lord anointed you, quote unquote. I guess somehow Valentin then became anointed. I don't know what took place that he became anointed, but again, these guys build this whole huge theology of anointing. They believe it, they teach it, they believe that some people are more anointed than others. 
Chris Valentin at that point in his life and ministry became anointed, quote unquote. At the hour and 27 minute mark, Valentin says he had an encounter with the Lord. He told him he wants him to live for a generation that he will never see. So I guess, again, this is private revelation where Jesus taught him something that you can actually find such other principles in scripture. But again, it's sort of extra biblical revelation, personal revelation. You do something specific. I'm commanding you to do something specific to live for a generation you'll never see. So in the previous episode, he said God only spoke to him two times out loud, audibly, Jesus. Um, But I counted in the last episode, I counted three times where God spoke, Jesus spoke to him audibly, that he had, that he himself has claimed, and this is the fourth. So did Jesus speak to him audibly four times? I mean, that's a pretty specific thing. He wants him to live for a generation that he will never see. So either he's not telling the truth that God spoke, he says God, Jesus spoke to him two times only in his entire life audibly, but I count four. Um, this one and three others that I talked about in the previous episode. So it's just, um, yeah, either he's not telling the truth or it's he's making stuff up. I don't know. Like, you know, these guys just say stuff. They say stuff. God only spoke to me two times ever in my life, uh, out audibly, but this is pretty audible. That's a pretty specific message that Jesus told him to live for a generation that he'll never see, but he sees his grandkids. Um, maybe I'm just splitting hairs. Um, he has grandkids and then he puts money aside for them and stuff like this. Um, yeah, you do build it for a generation. You can see he's building for a generation. You can see right there. They're his grandkids. They're right there. Um, so I don't know. Am I splitting hairs? <laughs> he can see them. So at the one thirty-one minute mark, uh, Valentin says, talks about the miracle where Jesus turned water to wine to justify um, that you're, that you're uh, making the best wine ever. If your mother tells you to make wine, um, then you must have been doing it at home already. Jesus must have already been doing this type of miracle somehow, sort of like a practice run. You know, he's been doing it. He's practicing for the big dance, you know? So um, then Darren Frelia says like, wait, what? (laughs) It's pretty funny. You should check it out, that section. Um, you mean Jesus did another miracle before turning water to wine? And, uh, so he kind of questions Chris here. Then Chris says, well, it's his first public miracle. So he might've been doing it before. Ah, These guys are unreal. It's so funny. You know, fairly kind of like, wait, what? Jesus did another miracle. You know, (laughs) he just creates stuff. They just make stuff up for the sensational nature of it. Like, wow, that sounds so cool that Jesus was actually doing these sorts of dress rehearsal miracles beforehand at home. You know, he's at his, in his room. He's like, hey, mom, do we got any more jugs? <laughs> I mean, it's funny. Uh, it's hilarious. So these guys just create stuff because it sounds fun and sounds cool, but it shows they follow their own vain imaginations. That's what's happening here. It's their own vain imagination. They create storylines in the Bible that undergird that we are creating wealth, that we ought to create wealth, that Valentin makes up a biblical, biblical story, and God wants us to do what Jesus did. So Jesus was at home practicing how to turn water to wine, creating wealth. He was Jesus was creating wealth with the miracle the, of the wedding at Cana. <laughs> 
They twist the story of the wonderful fish catch as well. Valentin says that Jesus had them throw their nets on the other side. They didn't catch like three minnows. They caught a huge haul. So Jesus didn't let them just catch a little bit. And that's why, well, you know, that's, that's this is prosperity gospel teaching at its finest. Valentin says John didn't say to Peter, hey, that must be the Lord because he's so frugal. He only gave us three fish. You know, these guys, they twist these stories. So <laughs> the idea being when Jesus let them catch a huge catch of fish, it was a huge catch. It wasn't just three little minnows. And then, uh, you know, Peter didn't uh, notice uh, that it was the Lord because, hey, Jesus is so frugal. That must be the Lord. <laughs> it's like that's the the incredible fish catch proves that the prosperity gospel is the real deal. Jesus isn't poor. He wasn't poor. He was only rich. They stretch stuff way beyond its hermeneutical boundaries. At the 135 minute mark, Valentin talks about risk and reward and R and D culture. Again, I'm not going to spend much more time on it, but um, we don't need the R and D. We don't need to research and develop as Christians. We have everything we need for life and godliness. You don't need to risk stuff. You don't need to test stuff. You don't need to try new stuff. Go off the map. Don't do that, Christian. The Bible is your roadmap. Stay on it. And you have everything you need in its pages for life and godliness. We don't need to take risk. Now, taking risks by like, for instance, going to Africa as a missionary is different than taking risks that they're talking about. They're talking about try new stuff, spiritual in the spiritual uh, realms, try a new prophecy, just try it, just step out in faith, do this and that, just try new stuff. They're not talking about going, taking a risk, risking your life for the gospel. They're not talking about that. They're talking about uh, these things that their BSSM kids are doing, they teach them to take risks when practicing life in the Holy Spirit. They're not talking about taking great risks for God. Like William Carey said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. They're not talking about that. They're talking about going off the map. They're talking about risks in the spiritual life and the life of the church. And I would posit that that's not appropriate because the Bible lays out clearly how we ought to live life in community. The New Testament clearly describes life in the ecclesia of God and how we ought to worship, how we ought to practice spiritual filling, how we ought to practice gospel ministry, how we ought to live in community of the church. Those things are prescribed in the New Testament. Now, there is a certain amount of risk taking in the way we're talking about. I'm not, I'm not talking about, uh, uh, you know, missions and stuff like that. And they're not talking about it either, but there is a regulatory principle of worship. I'm not on board with the whole thing, but there is a new Testament description of how we ought to worship what way, what manner, and the things that are added by Bethel do not belong to the, to the principles laid out in scripture of how our worship ought to go. Mallaton then uses his idea of coaching up uh, kind of as a theme as Matthew 18. If a brother has sinned against you as a, as a basis for coaching people up in the prophetic, 
Um, these guys have no idea what the scriptures are about. They don't know what the word of God is about. They twist them to mean things and to point to things that they don't mean. Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18, if someone has sinned against you, go to him in private and see if he repents. If the person who has sinned against you does not repent, take another that may witness and confirm that they're not repenting. Then if he still does not repent, take him before the church and the elders to excommunicate him. That's what the process of Matthew 18 is about. Matthew 18 is not a passage to approach someone who's made a bad prophecy. It's just not the same thing. These guys use scriptures to prop up their own arguments about how prophetic ministry should be done. That's not what Matthew 18 is about. Ballatin has misapplied and twisted this scripture here. He's a pseudo-teacher, a false teacher, falsely building a case for a completely false theology, built on false premises, built on false prophecy, and props his whole thing up with a passage like this saying, this is why we don't publicly dismiss somebody who made a false prophecy. It's just not the same thing. We go to them privately, but that's not what Matthew 18 is about. It's about private sins against one another. And if someone sinned against you, go to your brother in private. This is awful. Matthew 18 is not about approaching a person who's made a public false prophecy. It's about private sins against one another who are in your own community, who are in your own church, who you have access to, who have personally sinned against you. Dan Fairley says it's better and easier to pastor a wildfire than to stoke a flame and get it, uh, get it, get people fired up. Um, this is garbage. Where is that in the Bible? Uh, these guys just, again, make stuff up. There's no scripture that points to such an idea that I can't imagine or think of that says it's easier to pastor a wildfire where people are making mistakes and destroying stuff and doing wrong stuff and burning things up than it is to get people excited. These guys make stuff up. They just make stuff up. Valentin says at the one hour and 40 minute mark, the only thing perfectly organized and clean is a graveyard. Um, at the very end of this episode, Valentin basically says that churches that are not risking stuff, not trying stuff, not taking risks, not getting out there, not being fires that are burning things up, then they're graveyards. The hubris again comes out all the way through to the end of this episode. They are so arrogant. They're so proud. They're doing it right. Y'all who are boring churches are all graveyards. If you're not taking risks, then you're dead spiritually. That's the only conclusion you can draw from what he said. Life is messy. Prophecy is messy. This whole subject, it's not clean cut, you know, people. You have to just try stuff and take risks. Otherwise, you're a graveyard. What else can you conclude from these things? These guys' as hubris is unbelievable. We're doing it right. Y'all are doing it wrong. And not only are y'all doing it wrong, but you're graveyards. You're dead spiritually. There are some nice elements in this video, some nice elements where he describes his, uh, his business and stuff like that, and the sections where he took a moment to stop talking about theology. Those were the, the respites from false teaching. But for the most part, this guy's a false teacher. It's very clear. He's a pseudo teacher. He doesn't teach the truth. He twists stuff to fit into his theological prophetic uh, box. And you should avoid him. The Bible's clear in Romans 16, 17. 
um, that we ought to mark and avoid people who diverge from, uh, from sound doctrine. Mark and avoid them. And this is my attempt to help you to understand what is wrong with their teaching at this church and in this ministry. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Churchpreneur's Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at richardpmore.net. I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter if you do that kind of thing. My Twitter handle is at richardpmore23. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-P-R-E-N-E-U-R-S at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast, any comments, questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. Until next time, God bless you and take care.